I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo, Principals at Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our guest today is Wade Gunther, partner at Wilshire Phoenix. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Pierre, for having me on. It's uh, really excited to be here. And uh, thank you. Great to meet you, Wade. I don't think we've ever had the chance of meeting in person. So this is a bit of fun. If you, you know, it would be really great if you could tell us about the arc of your career, uh, where you started in the industry. I mean, how you started in the industry, where you started, um, where that's taken you. you. You've actually had a very uh, interesting career path that's been quite varied. So we thought we'd start with that. Yeah, I, I started the, in the ETF industry, I want to say back in 2009 uh, at, at BMO, just with uh, their website and getting, they, they only had about $2 billion in assets at the time. And now I think they're the number two ETF sponsor in, uh, in Canada. Uh, I started there and then I went over to Verizon's ETFs and I was the ETF analyst there. Worked with a really great, uh, great cast there. Uh, I, I believe you're familiar with Steve Hawkins. He's on oh, yeah, uh, quite a bit. And uh, he is a phenomenal guy. Uh, I learned so much from him. And he, uh, he gave me an opportunity to move into the portfolio management division uh, with um, working with the covered call funds and as an assistant portfolio manager to uh, Eden Rahim, he was the, I guess the, he was so excellent at the covered call strategies and running those strategies. And he is to this day, one of my mentors. And I, uh, he is just such a special person to me, gave me all the opportunity that, that I, that I wanted and, and taught me so many things about options and, and the industry it was just such a great opportunity. And then when he left the firm to start his own his own thing at Next Edge Capital. I was there from 2011 to 2000 and I guess the end of 2016 when I moved to New York. And, uh, and then after that, I, I just was, became a portfolio manager, took over the covered calls uh, space and until they brought in Nick and Hans and then we all worked together as a team. And from there, it was managing the, the leveraged and inverse leveraged funds and, and, and doing that with the, the whole team there. And that team is so phenomenal, really great cast to work with. The operations are run so well. And I guess it's just a lot of credit to Steve and, and everybody who, who run that shop that, that really, really know that business so well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just thankful for the opportunities they gave me and, and now I'm here. So. From there, I moved to, to the United States and worked at the public. How did they suck you out of the, out of the Canadian marketplace to get you to go play in the U.S.? That... It, it wasn't them. It was actually my wife. Uh, she had a, a career opportunity there with her firm and they moved her to, to the U.S. And, you know, I, I, I made this joke when I was leaving and it's like, uh, Steve, I love you, but I love my wife even more. So I, I guess I gotta, I, I have to go. And that's how, that's how that went. And I went to the Horizons U.S. office and 
it, they just had a, a couple of funds there and that business really, really struggled. And they ended up, uh, I guess the parent company, which was Murray Asset, ended up purchasing Global X and, and rolling the, uh, the two or three funds that Horizons had in the United States in, into Global X. And then after a certain amount of time, I just, this opportunity came up that I, I really couldn't pass up and, uh, and I'm just really excited to be here and, and, and just start building a business from the ground up. And it's, it's phenomenal to watch. So, so it sounds like, I mean, you actually have had, you've had some pretty good, uh, luck in your run. I mean, BMO, the infancy of, of the ETF business there and th their management group really putting a shoulder into that. And then moving into Horizons, probably, uh, I think BlackRock's probably number one. And then you've got BMO and then you've got Horizons. And certainly Horizons is up there as, as one of the, I think probably the largest independent sort of non-bank owned um, ETF provider. If not that, then very close to that. So you had a good experience in starting at companies when they were in their infancies and, and, then, and then growing them along. And so I understand that some of the products you have at... Um, it, it's Wilshire Phoenix. Am I pronouncing that? I got that right. So Wilshire Phoenix is going to have some real asset sort of um, uh, tone to it, if you will. And you've got some expertise in that area. So, you know, I think it probably makes some sense. And as I was mentioning before, I saw the one article this morning, you know, people are piling into the commodity trade, realizing that that may have been a bit of a hole in their portfolio. Maybe not so much in Canada with the, the Canadian equity portfolio in Canada that helps hedge that a bit. But let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the role of real assets in a portfolio, um, you know, how they help hedge inflation and things like that. What are, you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, we think real assets have a, a huge advantage in a, in a portfolio. I mean, we just generally find that they, the diversification benefits are really hard to ignore, right? Like they're generally non-correlated with broad equity market returns. Things like uh, real estate, for example, is, I mean, the similarities is that real estate tends to have long cycles, whether it's just positive returns or, or, or negative, but again, they're just non-correlated with, with broad equity markets. It's, it's a good physical asset as a diversification um, uh, enhancement to a portfolio. And we see gold as that in the same kind of class, like a, a physical asset, generally non-correlated returns with the broad equities over the long term, and is considered uh, a store of value and a safe haven in in more tumultuous markets. So that's one of the reasons why we 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 brought our our gold product out to the market it is the first ETF for us. But you know, we we just feel like that real asset or the innovation in the the real asset space was was really not there. Right. And, and how do you, um, when you're, when you're talking to advisors and allocators, how are you helping them slot in real assets? Is there any guidance that you give or especially given the context that we're in currently with sort of this shift from, you know, largely a monetary policy and monetary largesse in a way shifting to through COVID and, and having math, massive fiscal stimulus where, you know, you actually have money hitting, you know, the, the Joe six pack, the main street guy. So we, we have that, those, some of those inflationary impulses, some of that, um, you know, you know supply side, uh, or demand pull side, um, um, uh, tactics are coming through because the money is actually getting to 
Joe Sixpack, I'll call it. But what are your thoughts there and how are you seeing the macro landscape playing out for um, real assets in general? Well, we think there's a really, uh, it's a great story for real assets right now, because especially in the U.S., and I'll just start there first, mm. is that the, um, the, the federal government is making a really big push on infrastructure and uh, economic growth. And, you know, I mean, they're talking about, you know, fiscal, you know, probably uh, tightening fairly soon, but in, but in terms of like getting people back to work and that sort of thing, the, the big push is on infrastructure and the spending on infrastructure is going to likely put a massive demand on, on real assets, the input, input materials. And on a global scale, we see this being very effective when say emerging economies are moving into more developed nations through the advancements of technology. Buildings are going to be either built or rebuilt with modern technology advances. Again, which was going to require infra infrastructure uh, enhancements and again, more raw materials for, for these construction projects. And we're talking on a global scale, this is, could be a huge, a, a huge opportunity for people who are investing in real assets. I know Rodrigo's got some good Peruvian stories on how, how that, uh, inflation manifests and, and growth manifests into some of the more developed, developing areas of the world through, through these types of inflationary impulses or inflationary growth impulses globally, uh, where you get, you know, 1.9 trillion in stimu stimulus package from Biden that is directed at, you know, call it bridges and roads and ports and those types of things. Um, you know, a lot of the minerals and things like that reside in Latin America. Yeah, it's certainly it's interesting because there's so many facets to inflation. Um, the one that you're describing, Wade, is one where there is actual money being used for productive purposes where you're going to have infrastructure being built out and, and natural resources are going to be needed. And so you're going to have a demand for those natural resources. And you're also going to see probably those emerging markets that are highly dependent on the commodity prices doing well as well. I think the inflation that I lived through was one of uh, supply push inflation, which is basically money printing for the sake of money printing with no productive capacity whatsoever. Um, so, you know, I think we have a little bit of both today, right? We, they, there could be, it could be said that not all the money in this stimulus package or all the money being used today is going to be used for productive reasons. Um, you have a bunch of money printing and unprecedented levels, and then you have an actual plan put that money to work, which will lead to likely um, other inflation um, issues like labor getting more costly. Uh, uh, so I think it's it's one of those moments that I see from my third world uh, perspective that inflation is hitting on all cylinders here. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see what inflation hedges are coming down the pike. Uh, gold has always been there, right? It's been an interesting play, but it also has been interesting how it, it hasn't performed so well in the last few months, um, given the inflation narrative that we've seen. What do you think that is? That's a great question because you're right. We've seen the same thing. Gold is essentially flat this year after starting the year, not doing very well, bottoming out, I want to say around the end of February, and then kind of making a little bit of a, 
a little bit of a run, I want to say in April and, and, and starting in May. And I think what, how that is, is because of the inflation story and the inflation numbers being so much higher than it's expected. I think it was like two and a half in, uh, in March and then 4% in, in April. And these are way higher than expected, albeit off of a very low base from 2020, right? Like we, we saw some, some, some bleak, some bleak numbers in, uh, in 2020, but still with that, we think that has been a, a huge trigger for the run-up in, uh, in gold recently. And it also helped, we believe that it helped get over that 1800 optical hurdle. And I think it was the beginning of May. And now all eyes are on 1900 and it's kind of been around there. And it just has to do with, I think the optics and what people are expecting for inf inflation going forward. What we saw with, at the end of 2020 was COVID vaccine recovery, recovery. 2021 isn't recovery, it's magnitude of recovery. And then when you talk inflation, it, it really changes people's expectations on that magnitude. And I think that has been a, a story that we've been coming across a lot lately when we've been talking to advisors about this and how they're going to position themselves. There was kind of jockeying for the right, right position, but based on this inflation and the magnitude of recovery, that's, that's where they're not sure. And uh, where we think that the gold and other physical assets have been, um, have been there to kind of help dampen some of the equity market volatility we've seen around these numbers and, and also, um, uh, parlay that into the growth that they've been seeing over the last couple of months in, in, in these physical assets. I think there's, there's definitely a, the, that inverse relationship gold has to real rates as well. And we saw that just even a couple of days ago when, you know, the, the Fed sort of changed its position slightly and said, hey, we might, we might be actually raising rates sooner than we thought. And, and you saw, you know, I wouldn't call it a bloodbath, but certainly a check back in, in the gold price, um, you know, just three days ago. So I do think there's that, there's that real rate, that inverse relationship with real rates that gold shares that definitely has some, some impact um, on a day-to-day -day basis. What about the, what about the deflation, the deflationists, the David Rosenbergs of the world who are saying, Hey, wait, the demographics, the, the, um, uh, the growth, the debt, um, all, you know, I don't know that they're, the inflation is permanent. Maybe it's more, uh, transitory. What do you think of, uh, gold and, and in a deflationary environment, what are the, what are the proclivities of gold in those types of environments? Well, we look at gold as. Again, it's a store of value and a very long-term investment and like a, a core allocation to a, a portfolio. So with, if we're talking about inflation and it's transitory or two months of high inflation, then you have a lull for like six months or whatever the, the time period is. And then it either goes down or back up. We're not really trying to speculate on what or how much inflation is going to be. We just believe that inflation, I don't know, it's just like a, it, it's going to be there in some respects. And having a physical asset in the portfolio is just generally, we believe, is good just to capitalize on whatever that's going to be. I guess we're just not trying to time the inflation. That is, is what I'm really trying to get at and to, to allocate to physical assets just so you don't have to, to, 
to kind of make that determination or, uh, on how much it's going to be. It's yeah, that, it's, that's it's, so, I mean, you're treating is more of an all weather type holding. And again, part of a core allocation to your, your broad equity portfolio, right? We're not saying to replace it by any means. We just like to use it as a, you know, diversifying component and, and, and just to be present in that space in case inflation is whatever it, whatever it is, because, because it has been, it has been so topical lately. And it's typically investors don't view gold as, uh, you know, more than a tactical holding, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's actually, you know, it's actually nice to hear, uh, you know, speaking of gold, but it's not just stri strictly something that you own at these tactical moments. Um, so, uh, I think, I think that's an important, that's an important point to, uh, to, uh, share with advisors and investors is that, is that, you know, gold should be treated as something more, more uh, strategic rather than tactical. And, and Joe, I don't know if you can, I, I'm sharing my screen right now just to give the audience an idea of this, this like long-term holding um, mindset that one has to have. Are you guys seeing my screen now or no? Yep. 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 It's up there. And so on the bottom right here, yep. you're, you're going to yep. see the, uh, the gold price from the 1970s to today, along with, you know, bonds at the top right, uh, global equities in the top left and commodities in the bottom left. And you can see that each one of these has a positive expectancy. You see it, it going from the bottom left to the, to the top right over time. And they, each one of these asset classes has their day in the sun and has their day in the winter. And gold seems to be uh, one of those asset classes that just tends to work and diversify at the right time when everything else isn't working, right? But it requires such a long-term uh, mindset that I think it's pretty difficult for investors to really hold on to that stuff long-term. So wait, I'm kind of curious, just from your perspective, how do you, how do you help advisors get over that, um, that hurdle? It's an interesting question. I just feel like, um, with the access to information, there are so many articles written about so many things and the behavioral finance of investing and people make emotional and sometimes irrational decisions uh, about their investments that they may have have more of a tactical approach, even though what they are trying to do is a, a strategic investment allocation. So we, we just think that behavioral finance has a lot to do with it. And with, with our product, we're trying to take that out because the fund actually does this for you. So we, we believe that gold and other physical assets are the good, the, the long, the long-term hold, you just have to commit to it and try what we believe is to try not to let the behavioral or the knee-jerk reaction or what's the flavor of today really influence your, your long-term strategy. Set your plan and stick to it. And that's, and we believe that. Yeah, we're, we're very big proponents of that. I mean, if you, I don't know if you have our, our target chart handy there, Rod, but I think that that helps people sort of understand that you can have part of your portfolio that's tactical. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I would take some uh, advice from Ray Dalio where he says, if you don't own gold, you d either don't understand economics or um, you don't understand history. And this is an asset class that has been around a long time and ha can be a very positive contributor to portfolios in different regimes. So in the, in the market target chart, we call it, 
uh, you have two dynamics. Uh, horizontally, you have growth. And on the vertical axis, you have inflation. And they create four regimes, an inflationary regime, a disinflationary boom regime, a deflationary bust, and a stagflationary regime in the top left-hand corner. And when you have expectations around inflation and growth changing, the assets in these various quadrants respond quite predictably. If you have inflationary growth, growth above inflation, um, the growth of the globally is, is okay and can, can offset the inflation in the underlying uh, input costs, those real assets do really, really well, gold included. Um, conversely, if you're in a deflationary bust, uh, or inflationary stagflation, your traditional assets like stocks and bonds don't do well. And they don't do well because there's a structural relationship. If you have inflation that's higher than expected and the global growth is not able to overcome those input costs, profitability of both bonds and stocks is very low. And thus those forward cash, uh, discounted cash flows are low. But what does do well are things like commodity and gold and commodities and gold. In the 1970s, gold returned 24% real while there was negative real returns in stocks and bonds. And that was for over a decade long period. So, you know, in our view, rather than trying to guess, you probably should have some strategic allocation to hard assets like gold in your portfolio. And then think about uh, the second step is thinking about being tactical in that holding. But so, so we would, we would agree wholeheartedly. I would also note that gold that say, that isn't that the have anything else top performer of three out of the, those four quadrants. It just seems, mm -hmm. you know, what, what I think what's happened is that inflationary and accelerating growth regime has dominated our careers, uh, for, you know, last 20 to 30 years. And therefore it feels like that is where you want to put most of your eggs in that basket. But the reality is that. You know, if you think about it long term and you think about these long cycles that Wade was talking about when it comes to real estate, it's the same thing for, for gold. That we, if you want to be prepared, you need to think about these hard assets, including gold, as a, uh, as a long term strategic holding that, that might be able to protect your wealth uh, over time. In particular, in a period where we've, you know, you look at, you know, money supply growth, M1, M2, vis a vis, you know, hard assets. Um, when you, when you create that much money out of thin air, uh, certainly, you know, gold, there's an extra one to 2% of gold created a year, but it's not, it's not 25% of the monetary supply as we've sort of globally done over the last little while. So we made, we made a great case for gold, you know, I, real I, assets. I, I was just going to say, <laughs> this is, this is, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I got triggered. <laughs> Love it. I love it. <laughs> so, so wait, I just have a, because holding gold is a tough behavioral thing. I know like there's a ton of options to, to get access to gold. And I do want to talk a little bit about wh why, like you, you jump ship to do this business. Why? Did, I mean, it seems like anybody wants to get a gold, just go ahead and buy the most liquid iShares uh, GLD that claims to have direct gold exposure. Why would you want to throw your hat in the ring in, in such a, what feels to be a pretty mature market? We just believe that innovation was really lacking, particularly in this space. And being able to bring an institutional type strategy to everybody was so appealing and so new that I, I couldn't 
personally pass up this opportunity. And so I'm working with some really great people who, who created this vision and this strategy. And I just am excited to, to bring this type of strategy to, to everybody, not just people with a certain amount of money to invest or, or anything like that or high net worth or or institutions only like this is for, this should be for everybody. And that's why, that's why I did it. I love to see when investors get the best of what can be available. And again, this, this opportunity was, was just something I couldn't pass out. Yeah. Let's dig into it. Tell us everything. The the strategy behind WGLD looks at the, again, the, the realized volatility through a 45 day look back period, the realized volatility of gold, and then also the realized volatility of the S&P 500, and then makes its allocation based, uh, its gold allocation based on uh, the the algorithms that b- between the relationship of uh, gold and the S&P 500. So because it it has this adaptive exposure to gold, it really, adds value to investors because they don't need to time the market of when to essentially buy or sell gold. The, the fund will actually, or the index will, will do it for the investor. And another huge benefit of that is that investors don't create a a taxable capital event themselves. So they don't have to sell their ETF shares if, you know, they think gold is going down. So we find that it's a huge benefit and something that just wasn't in the, in the current marketplace. So just to understand the timing aspect of it, are you talking about 45 days standard deviation and having a volatility cap, or are you allocating between gold and the S and P in terms of timing? Nope. It's the only two assets in the portfolio are gold and cash. So it's either invested in physical gold or in cash. So there's a floor value of 50% gold and then it it goes up to a hundred percent. We don't use leverage derivatives, any futures or anything like there's, there, there's none of that. It's just a matter of rotating between gold and cash based on the levels of realized volatility of gold and the realized volatility of the S and P 500. I see. Okay. So you're just providing a vol size gold exposure that autom- automatically inter- reacts to market dynamics reduces or increases gold, fairly simple, no derivatives. Right. Right. And, and that's, that actually helps with the behavioral side of holding gold for the long term, I imagine. Right. right. And we, we rebalance monthly. So it captures recent periods and then doesn't include say, you know, periods two years ago that just may not be relevant uh, based on market data, just may not be relevant to currently what's going on. And are you, are you smoothing that at all, that 45 days? So you're, you're, you're observing at the end of every month, looking back 45 days, is that a, you exponentially smooth that you just simple moving average of, of the vol, how, how, what are the, um, what are the mechanics? We simply just annualize it and, and that's it over the 45 days. And then how does it interact with the, the, so I, I would, the clear part I get to gold here's the vol over the last number of days, the vol was twice as high. So we have a reduced exposure. How does the S and P's vol play into that? How does that algorithm weave itself into there? And then, and then I've got a follow-up question to that. 
Sure. It's a two-step process. So we first look at the gold volatility. So if it's below a certain value, then the allocation, let's say we're launching the fund today would be a hundred percent gold. And if it was above a certain value, then the, the algorithm would begin reducing the exposure. And that, that's always going to be, be true. So again, if it's below the certain, uh, annualized uh, volatility level, it's going to be hundred percent gold, no matter what the S and P 500 is doing. But then once the gold volatility goes above its threshold value, then it looks at S and P, Hey, what's the S and P 500 doing? Is it volatile? Yes. Okay. Well, let's, let's increase some of the exposure that it just reduced because the high gold fall. And if the, and if the S and P 500 is volatility is low, then it would likely keep that reduction in volatility because gold volatility was elevated. And is it the same 45 day sort of simple look back period that you're using on the S and P as well? That is correct. Neat. And so that, that would be the step one gold vol step two, uh, S and P vol as it relates to gold vol and then, uh, rebalance the portfolio for the upcoming month. That's correct. And then hold that. And so what's the, my follow-up question is what's the, what's the theoretical linkage, um, that, that, that you believe, or that Wilshire believes brings that, um, the relevance of the S and P vol into a gold positioning. What's, what's the, the first principles thinking on that? It's generally because when S and P 500 volatility is, is high, then we often see that rotation to value, whether, you know, increasing us dollar or allocations to gold. So as, as like a safe haven, so we would want to increase our exposure during those, during those times to, to capitalize on what we would expect as higher demand for gold and, and increased gold prices. That's very interesting. All right. And then, so, so what, um, I'm, I'm sure you probably have back tested this in some way. What, what were the the levels of um, increased uh, risk adjusted returns? Is it, is it mainly accruing on the risk side? Are you seeing enhancements of return and risk? Well, what are you seeing there on your, on your uh, portfolio stats? Yes. Yeah, so we back tested this for the last 20 years and we saw improvements on both. We saw improvements on return and we saw improvements on risk adjusted return because the the Wilshire Gold Index, which is the underlying index for WGLD, had uh, experienced a lower a, a lower level of volatility than gold. So it's a slight outperformance of gold through back tests and slight improvement in in volatility. So both of them with a essentially improved the risk adjusted return. And and what about the portfolio contribution? So you you are changing slightly the the character of the return vector of gold. Did you look at that and, and look at the contribution to sort of the traditional 60-40 and, and how that was impacted? I don't think we looked at that in a, the traditional 60-40, but we did look at it compared to the S&P 500, again, as an allocation to the, the core broad equity portfolio. And again, improvements across the board, uh, better risk-adjusted returns and, and slightly higher returns because you were still having an allocation to gold during crisis periods, during 
um, some some downtrends that were maybe more sharp uh, V formation, and again with a with a lower volatility, and often lower volatility than the S and P five hundred itself. It just improved the the overall uh, function of the of the portfolio than than just broad equities alone. So we thought this was really attractive, and again through innovation that we just really haven't seen through from uh, in the gold space in, in quite some time or, or yet at all. I got one, one, one or two more follow-ups. Hold on, Ron. Um, I know you're itching. Um, the, the tracking error. So how, how, how is the tracking? Error? Cause that, that's something we find too is often a challenge, right? Even though something might in the long term, 20 years add significant value, if it holds back the portfolio for five or six years, that's a really tough tracking error issue to address. Did you, did you, did you find any, um, uh, any observations in the tracking error that, that were helpful or hindrance or some things you have to educate around? I mean, tracking error is something that we, it doesn't, I don't believe doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, unfortunately, it's really difficult for us to measure that, right? Because what we can do is we can extrapolate the fees through the Wilshire Gold Index and in the back test. But what does that really tell you? You backed fees out. I mean, there's, there's other things that contribute to, to tracking error and how the fund is managed. And we launched this fund, I think, two, maybe three months ago. We just don't really have enough data yet to really see on, on whether this, uh, whether the tracking is really an issue at this point. Right. I was actually referring not to the tracking error to your own index, but more the tracking error to, so that if it's a 60-40 portfolio, for example, or if it's a, you know, an all-equity portfolio, How's the, what's the client experience like? And then what is it to just gold? So do you underperform gold at times where you're sort of sitting there, um, the advisor will come to you and say, Hey, look, you're, you're, you're not keeping up with gold. I, I, I bought you for gold, which, you know, probably want to own both have some active and some strategic, um, but. Right. We're going to, we're going to see some differences in the tracking to gold for sure, because it is some periods. The, uh, the index will be underexposed to gold, right? And other periods, it will be one-to-one. Like it never goes beyond 100%. So there's, it's like, that's the maximum. So either we're going to be perfectly correlated with gold or we were going to be underexposed. But the the algorithm is going to tell us what to do. So just over the long period, we just saw the outperformance and it, it just, it's ebbs and flows. Certain times we would, we would outperform and again, probably when gold was more volatile and, and likely trending downwards. And then there was just, there was other periods where, uh, where the index did not perform well. And I think the most glaring period would be when the, the index or there was significant volatility that suggested a reduction in gold exposure right before gold had a strong upward trend. And then we were underexposed in a rising gold market. But the end of that month, the, the index would rebalance and potentially recapture that gold exposure back up if gold was still continuing in that upward trend. So it's, it just, it ebbs and flows. But again, over the long term, we, we saw that it added it added some some value to the portfolio and and generally outperformed physical gold over the long period. So, so Wade, I, I don't know if you've spoken to any Gen Zers in the last few months of your life, but uh, 
some in that group might say that uh, you're an old man, boomer, and that gold's out and there's a new kid in town called Bitcoin that, it, that is eating gold's lunch. We actually saw that perception of that, this divergence between inflation being a big thing, Bitcoin going through the roof to 65,000 while gold started going down. Um, what, what would you say to that, uh, to that generation that, that believes that gold is dead? We, we, we believe in crypto. We believe in, I mean, that's, I mean, you know, we are, have filed for a, a Bitcoin ETF ourselves and we believe in the space. And what I would say to a Gen Z or anybody else who would think gold is dead is, you know, we look at them as, as complementary assets and because they have so many differences, like let's step back for a second. We see the, you know, GLD and IAU, they're both physical gold ETFs. They are direct competitors. They're essentially the same thing, but crypto and gold are different, right? Like they're fine that they're, they're both commodities, but one's digital, one's physical, one's like a payment method or a currency. The other is like a safe haven or a store of value. There's a lot of benefits to having both of these in the portfolio. And so we're, we're just telling people who are saying gold is dead that they could both coexist for a variety of different reasons. And we think that they can both add value to your portfolio if used in the right way. So is the idea, I imagine that if you're going to be getting exposure to Bitcoin, it's going to be in that type of risk managed way as well, or is the concept there just getting, getting that Bitcoin exposure and moving on? Well, I mean, the Bitcoin story, Bitcoin it just, it, it, it just, it has been difficult because there's, hasn't really been a long period and a lot of, uh, economic cycles, inflationary cycles that can really tell us how Bitcoin behaves over the long run. And, and I say Bitcoin, but I really mean like general cryptocurrency because Bitcoin is just one of thousands. Right. And they are all different. Like Bitcoin is, is mined and there's limited supply, but say stellar lumens is agreed upon transactions between the buying and selling party. And there's no mining or anything like that. Just, just as an example and, and supply is, is a different story. So we, I generally want to stick to the, just the, the general crypto story versus singling out Bitcoin. Uh, and, uh, because um, they're they're so they're so different. Again, we, we see them as as a comp complementary part of uh, of the portfolio. Have you? I, I don't think you've launched that product. So you're you pro are you entering into discussions with advisors and allocators, and and how are those conversations going, or how are you helping them wrap their heads around um, the crypto space? And it's difficult to talk about that one since that product hasn't has it launched yeah. and the SEC doesn't really give us a, a timeline for approval. And there's a lot of prognosticators who are estimating when this will happen. And I'm just not in the, um, the prediction. I'm not in the prediction space, so I'm just yeah. going to, uh, I'll just leave it at that. Well, I, I wasn't even looking for a prediction, but just the you know, you guys, as you said, you're not talking to advisors yet about it. So there, it's hard to speculate on how that's going to go, but more just general, um, are you getting, are you getting a lot of, uh, 
since you launched, do you get inquiries or are, are people calling in and saying, hey, when's this thing going to be live? A lot, a lot of interest. Uh, and I think uh, it's just, it's been great for us. And the, the other three partners here at the firm are crypto experts and they really, they know this space so well and, and have been able to to answer a lot of those questions about, uh, about the space, about the product. And, uh, and it's just, that's just kind of what we have to do right now is just answer the questions. We're, we're hearing the interest and that's, that's all we can really do right now. Are you guys planning on launching, uh, or developing other, uh, ETFs or, uh, with other commodities that use a similar adaptive approach? Can you, can you do that or does it only apply to gold or? We can, we plan on launching a number of ETFs with the adaptive approach because we can use it on essentially, uh, virtually any asset class, uh, sector, uh, pretty much anything. And we, we think there's a lot of value in this adaptive exposure approach that just really hasn't been brought to the market. And, uh, you know, we're excited for our pipeline. Like we're, we're really. It, it, it's going to be great. So we're, uh, we, we plan on bringing it to, uh, probably stick with the commodity space to start and then, uh, and then move into other asset classes with it. As you consider other commodities, I mean, the, the one thing about gold that's interesting is it's relatively concentrated in its value. So it's also relatively easy to hold and store. Copper, for example, would be a, a much harder one to find warehouses if you were going to uh, trade physical. Or are you? How are you guys thinking about those issues? Uh, I, storability is not really an issue for gold, um, and it, it's great because it differs differs from energy products that are mainly futures based. Then they have uh, rolling concerns with the futures, whereas just gold is spot and and that's it. So. I guess the only other concern with some of the, the other metals are degradation over time and the oxidization of say, uh, of copper is quite high. And one of the benefits that we've seen with gold is that it's been, it's used in so many consumer electronics and medical applications because it's such a great conductor of energy. And it also has. Uh, you know, it, it has a low oxidization and, 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 re and high retention. So, uh, we prefer that over other commodities to start, to start this business. Yeah. And, and how is, how are the ESG concerns with respect to that? How are you tackling the, um, the sort of wheat wave of ESG, uh, awareness that's washing over, especially when it comes to, you know, assets that are mined or drilled or all the, all the implications for the environment. Uh, yeah, we have started to have this conversation with, uh, advisors and, and other outlets. It's been a, a topic that it has come up a lot and the ESG, uh, si uh, the situation with gold has a lot to do with the mining and fair wage inflation and that it's, and it's become such a big topic. And we see that as fair wages and ESG concerns around that are, are increasing 
we see that the mining companies are likely going to have to compete on a, a fair wage and also uh, an ecological uh, fair footing. Like they're going to have to return mines and 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 sites back to the condition that they they were acquired in or better whatever the the local governments want as part of the uh, agreement to to purchase the mine mine if they are out of uh, if they're out of country and all of the legal and regulatory conversations and and costs associated with all of this we believe are going to increase the cost to mining uh, gold and and other uh, physical assets and because of this we think that the, the the price of gold and other physical assets will will probably increase to a point where mining companies will sell their physical assets like gold and copper and and, and other uh, metals until they reach a certain profitability threshold because they have all these increased costs associated with ESG. And because of that, we might see increased price pressure to, to recover, to recover these, these costs. And then also you may see some supply disruption because if the, the mining costs is, is higher than whatever spot is or the futures that they can, that they can sell them for, then the the decreased supply could essentially also help increase the price of a lot of these physical assets. So you see ESG playing a huge role in commodity prices in general, uh, in uh, in the near and and long term long term uh, future. So so at a micro level, really cost push um, price inflation on gold due to the. Uh, rising input costs that are related to the environmental concerns and actually having to price that into the the price of a bar of gold. It, you you can't leave the environment as a as an unaddressed cost. And if that's the case, you should expect higher uh, cost of production for the actual commodity itself, um, which in and of itself should should bode well for the price for those who are passive holders potentially. Right. And we see this as an opportunity before this is really, really taken effect into, into commodity prices. I feel like this topic just has not been talked about enough. And, uh, and, and we believe it's, it's just getting started and it's going to be something that investors are going to have to consider on a, in, in the, in the long term. And in terms of new exploration, these concerns are it's they're pretty uh, high barrier to entry, right? I mean, there's a there's there's definitely something prohibitive about it as well, right? And you might see a, re- a reduction in uh, in miners because of it. Oh, the ad- additional costs to to entry or to ones who are existing, increased co- uh, continuing costs for continuing operations uh, may increase and and force them out of the market, reducing suppliers, essentially reducing supply. Again, further further price expectations. Uh, we we could see that as a result. Yeah, and cons- consolidation. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can't imagine trying to get a approval for a, a new gold mine at this moment in time. 
we would like to dig a big hole over here in this nice, beautiful yeah. green space. Um, okay. And it's, it's global. Like uh, mm -hmm. nations are, are, are very aware of this and it's topical and, you know, we, we can see this happening no matter where, uh, any, no matter where any company is purchasing a mine these days. It just looks like it drives the price of gold even higher, but it also lends itself to, because of the, uh, the difficulty in starting a new gold mine, that you could see where the attention might shift over to, uh, you know, crypto mining as an alternative to, yep, you know, to getting, I mean, I don't, that's also a minefield as well with, uh, or, or power brownfield developments too in the gold space, right? Yeah. So, so areas that are already have produced or in production re-sparked, um, as prices rise, as happens in every cycle. We saw this with Bitcoin, I think, uh, a, a couple of years ago where I think the cost to mine it was somewhere around nine or $10,000. Bitcoin had dipped below, it was like somewhere around $6,000 and people were just storing their Bitcoin until the price got back up to somewhere above where they were mining it. And, uh, and that, and that was it. They, this, because it's already has a maximum supply, it just, the availability just drove the price right back up. Yeah. And I think with the commodity space, given how ingrained it is and how many big companies own as many properties that have been exploited already. There will be an, an attempt to clean it up, but there's also the emerging uh, liquidity in the carbon emissions credits that a lot of um, these companies will need to buy and use in order to become ESG friendly. Not to mention the fund companies that are um, dealing in that space as well. So there'll be you, there'll be creative ways of dealing with all of this in the future. Bullish on carbon credits too. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think carbon credits have outperformed Bitcoin, but anyway, like, don't quote me on that. Not advice. Well. <laughs> Where can people find you and, and Phoenix Wilshire and learn about all the things that you guys are doing or Wilshire Phoenix? I'm sorry. Yep. The Wilshire Phoenix, uh, website has, that's our corporate site and our ETFs are listed on wshares.com and WGLD is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So it's available at virtually anywhere you can purchase a, a New York Stock Exchange listed product. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's been a, it's been a great fund. We're really excited about our business and, uh, and, and look forward to bringing more, uh, excited innovation to, um, to investors uh, really soon. And anywhere on social media that uh, folks can follow you and the, and the firm? Yep. We're on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we're, we're everywhere that, that people are. Right on. So wait, this wouldn't be, this wouldn't be raise your average if we didn't ask you a final question. And so would you rather question, uh, would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future and why? Interesting question. I think I would spend a week in the past to make the future better. Just to fix the things that maybe 
could have been fixed sooner, done better, done sooner for the benefit of other people. Well said. Mm, interesting. Here I was, the, the capitalist going all about the me. I was going to get that almanac, <laughs> boss. Kidding. But see, yeah. See the sports you know, great low race sports almanac. That's like <laughs> one of the greatest. Yeah. That's, that's like my favorite movie, by the way. Like, I, <laughs> I could, I could probably recite the entire script. <laughs> I recently, I'm watched and it held us. You know what? Star Wars, we watched it this weekend with my girls. It holds up. It oh does. yeah. They're great. incredible. It does. Oh, yeah. oh, great. It's amazing. That's great. My wife hasn't seen it yet. So there's an opportunity there. So. Yeah. I found the Matrix too. The Matrix is coming out with a fourth uh, Matrix Four, and the first three Matrix movies, they really stand out. If I had, if I had to, my chat, I would go back in time and stop them from making two, two and three for the Matrix and number four that's coming up. I think <laughs> the first one was the only one that was worth watching. The first that's was what I would. That's what I would do with a time machine. Pierre, you didn't ask, but there you go. No, I, I, I would. <laughs> No, I, I, I would, I would go back and stop him. Yeah. <laughs> but so wait, <laughs> I kind of agree with Rodrigo because I would, especially when they ended the matrix with wake up by rage against the machine. And I was like that, that's the end for me. This is amazing. Last scene a hundred times. And it's the only movie I'd watch later. It's just because so, it's playing wake hundred percent. It's amazing. The whole soundtrack for that first movie is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Well, thanks, Wade. Appreciate your time. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for having us on. Thank you. It's amazing. Yeah. Pleasure.